This podcast is brought to you by the Harmon family of leading pro audio brands, including AKG, Crown, DBX, Digitech, JBL, Lexicon, and Soundcraft. Harmon Professional Solutions. Hear the truth. Learn more at harmon.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. His group, Was Not Was, rolled out some funky dance pop in the 80s. He's produced big records for the Rolling Stones, Bonnie Raitt, John Mayer, and the B-52s. But today he is in his office, high atop the famous Capitol Records Tower in Hollywood, as president of the venerable jazz label Blue Note Records. How did Don Was get here? How does he approach production? What makes him tick? I knew someday we would have this discussion. And everything that drives him does stem from a true love of music just that I had always imagined. Enjoy. This audio recording was not originally tracked with the intent of using for a podcast. It was recorded solely for transcription for our print interview. Please forgive any balance issues, background sounds, or lack of clarity. Enjoy. You know, I'm going to just go through a little quick history on you. We've never done an interview with you, and I think it's you got a fascinating story. Thank you. How does a, a bass playing kid in Detroit end up where you're at? And what were, what were your first steps really towards being a producer, you know, outside of being an artist? Well, I, I suppose you can uh, thank George Martin and the Beatles for <laughs> making uh, the recording process one of the instruments. Yeah. You know, I mean, other people... You know, clearly Les Paul did mm-hmm. that earlier, but there, but in, the, in a way that spoke to me, mm-hmm. uh, I think uh, it, it many originated people. with them. And many people, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I, I just was, I was aware of uh, uh, production values, and and I could I could hear, you know, just the way you hear. A musician hears certain nuances in playing that that that, that a non-musician would pick sure. up on a record. Uh, I heard, I just heard it, you know. So I was always fascinated by it. I, uh, David was who started was not was with me. Mm-hmm. We, we uh, his parents are both uh, uh, voiceover actors. Oh, really? So they so. Before we could drive, you know, when we, we they they we'd drive, we'd go down with them to recording studios and watch them. You know, his dad actually did the Sunday Sunday at Detroit Dragway, but he did it for <laughs> the whole nation. He, he oh, filled wow. in the blank of all the dragways. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a very iconic 1960s radio commercial. <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, so we'd watch him record, and just being in the studio, man, it was right. magical. Yeah, and uh, I just always wanted. to to be in those rooms. I, I just, there's something about the, the big mic stands with the mics and the wires everywhere right. and the acoustically treated walls and all the people sitting around in a circle playing together. It just looked like the most romantic, coolest place to be. Right. And it fucking is. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you. I and, know. <laughs> and, 
and sitting here at 63 years old, I can tell you the romance of it has never worn off, man. There's not a, a day that goes by that I'm, I really that I don't feel privileged, you know, to be in the studio. I just got to work at Fame Studios for the first oh, time. Oh, cool. Russell Schultz. Mm-hmm. Uh, producing a Greg Allman record, which was a, just an nice. amazing experience. And when I when I pulled up to that place, I'd never been to Muscle Shoals. Right. When I pulled up to the building, uh, I, I started crying, man. Just before I even went inside, just something about it's at this anonymous-looking intersection with a Chick-fil-A and a CVS, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. some, but life-changing oh, yeah. stuff came mm-hmm. out of this this this. Just this normal-looking building, yeah. and then you walk in and you see the pictures of everybody up there, and, and the, that the room is fundamentally unchanged from 1972, right. <laughs> and and to sit in Rick Hall's chair behind the board and, and be there for ten days and actually be doing sessions. Yeah, it. I I, I don't think a minute went by when I took that for granted. You know, I was really grateful for the opportunity. Last week. We recorded some songs on Sweet P. Atkinson for Blue Note at mm-hmm. a studio called Electrovox. You know this place? I've heard of that. Yeah. It's, it's LA's oldest studio. It right. Was, uh, a guy named Woody Jackson. Oh, yeah, yeah. We were talking about him yesterday. It's amazing, yeah. man. It, it, go it looks the same as it looked in 1939, <laughs> and Charlie Parker cut there. Oh, jeez. And they used to, uh, it was across the street from the Paramount lot. Right. And Paramount used to be RKO, and so they, they did right. the radio broadcast like the transcription broadcast. Right. And they'd run it across the street and they broadcast <laughs> it off the off the lacquer, right? Yeah. So it looks fundamentally the same and, and it's a great old universal audio console and, mm-hmm. and for both Greg's album and the sweet piece thing we got we went to uh, went to tape. Yeah. And then I was just I was trying to get it so it didn't sound so literal and clean and modern, right? <laughs> And we're a being against this older stuff, and uh, and it hit me, man. Well, they were bouncing the tracks, man. Let's, so we we took the rhythm tracks and bounced it down to yeah. a mono track through an old Gates compressor, right. and it's magnificent. It's, it sounds it sounds so it right. sounds like like a record, you know. And and the guy who was the engineer did a great job. He said, "I'm taking great notes, so when you want to mix the song." I said, what do you mean? We just mixed it. <laughs> so yeah. we're gonna, we made it. So we're going to live with this, you know. And and yeah. it and I was just so excited. I, I was playing it all weekend, you know. And, and yeah. it, it, I was just, you know, thrilled, man. It, it lifted my my spirits. Yeah. So it's just the great joy of my life is being able to make records. And I guess yeah. you, if you, how it happens is you, you just pursue it relentlessly mainly well you know something there yeah. are a lot of guys my age are born in 1952 right. a lot of musicians i know yeah. a whole like an inordinate number of them and i attribute that to the fact that when the beatles were on ed sullivan in yeah. 1964 we're 12 years old 10 12 yeah and that's just that's just young enough to to be dumb enough to say i want to do that <laughs> and if you were younger the screaming girls wouldn't have look cool and if you were older you'd say ah the, no no chance of it but yeah. at 12 you're just goofy enough to think right and, and so really i never had an alternative I, i'm unskilled i can't get a job anywhere you know how could i i have no other skills no outside other. of this you know? so uh you just have, have to make it work yeah <laughs> that's, that's what was your what was your choice. first experience of going in to record 
in a studio. Was it with Was Not Was? Or? Well, it was really before that, although yeah. it was probably Recording Institute of America, but it was an earlier incarnation of it. Where yeah. I can't, I don't remember what it's called, but they taught a class in Detroit right. at United Sound on the old uh, Flickinger. Right. And so I took the class. I was in my early 20s. And it gave me some idea of what, oh, okay, so each of these modules, that's just, they're all the same. You don't have to learn 90 different controls. Right? So that, yeah, I got the sense of, but I didn't, I didn't really learn how to engineer, but I, yeah. I did come out of the class and kind of guy named Jack Tan who owned a little studio mm-hmm. into thinking I could engineer. And, <laughs> and I started engineering sessions and you learn by, you know, through trial by fire. Right. And in one of the first, in fact, the very first session I did do was a, some, it was like $10 an hour for the studio. And the, and the band that came in was called the Amalgamated Funk Corporation. Nice. And the lead singer that band was Harry Bowen, who was one of the lead singers in Was Not Was. Right. <laughs> so that's how I met him. But we didn't do a Was Not Was record probably for another six, seven years. This is right. in the mid, early to mid seven Right. You know. So you took, you took the engineering first at least worked your way up on that yeah well that's how i got into a studio yeah but i I was a musician you know i played i played piano bars and played bass and trios or any kind of gig i could find up until i was in my 30s in detroit i just knocked it that's i earned a living on the bar circuit right and it was a great period of my life uh i'll put playing in local bars up there with playing in any arena on earth <laughs> yeah <laughs> it, was a, it was a great period and really diverse period i, I played with anyone who called me I, yeah. I, I used to work with this folk singer named ted lucas mm-hmm. in detroit and uh, we had a kunga player and i played bass nice. and drummer and somehow we got booked to open for black sabbath in toledo <laughs> at the toledo sports arena which was just a bunch of 14 year old boys on speed so w- when we came out, this racially mixed folk band at a Black Sabbath show, we we did, we, we lasted in the ring about a minute and a half before the drummer was bleeding too bad. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> and, real. <laughs> it was great, man. Oh, I, you man. know, I got fond memories of it. Uh, later became good buddies with Ozzy, you know. So. Oh man. Uh, so that, um, but just anything I, yeah, yeah. You know, any gigs I could do and. And I'll still do it, man. You know, yeah. like a... Well, you played on Brian Wilson's recent record, too. Yeah, I did play it's just a, yeah, yeah. Just, a, just a bass player. Yeah, yeah that's, that was a trip, man. That was... Uh, you know, I've known Brian for a long time. Yeah. And uh, you can't name any record producers who, who were ever better than Brian Wilson. There are other Kinda great wonder. ones, you know. Right. But, uh, but no one's ever really been, been better or made better records than he made. So it's... It's really, it's beautiful, you know, to watch him in action. Right. And, uh, and to take instruction from him. And, uh, and, to, yeah. and actually just, just to see him in such good shape and, yeah. and, and really be in command in the studio. It was great. It was a beautiful yeah. session. That's really awesome. Yeah. Your, your movie, your documentary on him and the, and the sessions for that were, uh, I thought, really amazing. I mean, I was just, I remember when that came out, there was sort of a little bit of a resurgence of interest in Brian and the yeah. Beach Boys and all. And I thought that was just a really wonderful, sympathetic way to, to put the spotlight back on him and say, look. Yeah, thank you, man. You know, I, I, there was a sense, you know, people here, you know, like, I'm not talking about musicians or record makers, yeah. but, but, but 
just music fans, they hear people say, oh yeah, Brian Wilson, he's a genius. Right. And if, but if you put on Surf and Safari, you might scratch your head and go, I mean, it's a good record, but why yeah. is this guy, you know? So I, I thought, let's focus on his music and let's actually explain to people why yeah. he's, you know, arguably the greatest genius in, in <laughs> rock and roll history. And yeah. So I, I think it was a good uh, layman's introduction to, yeah. to Brian. I, I, yeah, and that was really nice to get him in the studio and, and be tracking those songs like that to see yeah. how he would react because he just blooms when he's around music. Yep. As you know. Yeah. It was yeah. interesting to see. I mean, that movie was shot over the course of a month. You know, not yeah. not every day, but there, yeah. there was a couple of weeks went by and we'd shoot him some more. And just being around some action yeah. and making some music that sounded good, you can see his spirits completely alter by the end of the movie. You know, I mean, he's he's speaking differently, more confidently, yeah. and uh, yeah, it comes to life when you're yeah. making music. <laughs> yeah, it sure looks like it, you know. Actually, uh, there are a lot of guys that don't like that. <laughs> we used to, there's a, a cattle tick that that hangs in a tree and lowers its metabolism to one step above death. <laughs> and it, does, it, it doesn't have much free will. The only yeah. thing it does is it can sense when a cow is walking directly under it. Really? And then can't really steer itself, but can let go. Right. Switch it to full metabolism, drop on the cow, and get in under right. the cow's skin, and, and then do whatever ticks do, you know? <laughs> but I know a lot of musicians like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who lower their metabolism to, to just above death until it's time to go out and play. And, you know? And then they come to life. Well, you know, as a musician, there's a, that excitement that... That buzz. There's nothing like it, man. Yeah. Uh, we just did a, we played a Was Not Was gig uh, about three weeks ago. Mm. And uh, we hadn't played in 10 years. Right. But I've been playing, you know, most of it was the original guys. And uh, been standing on the same spot in the same <laughs> band setup since, you know, for since the 80s you know, right. so 19, we played our first gig together as a band in 1980 and we still set up the same on yeah. stage and still the same cast and man I, that's it feels like home yeah. <laughs> even yeah. if 10 years go by you know and we didn't even have to rehearse much because muscle memory plays the songs you, you remember right. the songs you know how they go and uh, it was it was wonderful but it, it's also well you, you see bands that have been around for a while you see, you know, guys have been standing on their spot on the stage layout yeah. longer than they've been married. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And speaking of that, you've worked with, you know, there's a lot of artists that, or legacy artists that you've worked with over the years. The Stones just repeatedly come up and, and you've done sessions with them and the, the reissues like recently. Yeah. Um, what is it that keeps you working with them? I, I keep going. Yeah. with them because they're the greatest band in the world. <laughs> they're extraordinarily great. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I've had the privilege of being able to play bass. Sometimes if Daryl Jones isn't around, I'll, right. I'll play. And uh, I've played on some of the records and done, just filled in for Daryl on some rehearsals. And stuff. Right. And when you, it took that to fully grasp the magnitude of, a thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, the level of interplay, the listening and the feeding of ideas, the conversation, the musical conversation is so 
it goes so deep in the Rolling Stones, mm-hmm. and it's kind of it's jocular. They, it's fun. It's yeah. fun to play in the Rolling Stones, <laughs> and they and they listen intensely, and they're constantly feeding each other ideas and yeah. and bouncing off. And it, it's a real uh, it's it's a really vivid musical experience. Yeah. It's, it's really alive, and you know there are good bands that are out there, but to get yeah. that kind of that thing where it becomes a living organism, yeah, uh, that that's pretty rare. I, I, I'll put them. Yeah, I'll put them up there with like the Miles Davis quintet of the '60s yeah. with Herbie and Wayne and, and yeah. Ron Carter and Tony Williams. As far as having a language that they speak together, a musical yeah. language uh, that that just flows and rolls and is uh, and touches people. Yeah, that they're they're a great musical aggregation and. Uh, Supremely honored to have been able to spend all this time with them. Yeah, and work with them for, for so long. And, and you find yourself mediating between. Well, you, you find yourself mediating between. <laughs> that's what a producer does, yeah, right? You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, um, yeah, but you, you know, it's it's not. I, I think there's a certain DNA code that runs through all bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's certain archetypes of band behavior. Yeah, and uh, and in many ways they're not that different from the band I was in in sixth grade, where there was tremendous disagreement. Actually, the, <laughs> that band was way worse than the song. <laughs> we, we were meaner. <laughs> and people quit. <laughs> no one, that's the thing about the Stones. No one, no one wants to walk out the door, but we kept quitting our band all the time. Oh yeah. Um, so uh, I think that there's a certain dynamic, and uh, and if you make records for a long time and you're a halfway compassionate person, you just yeah. understand that if you treat musicians with the respect that you'd like to be treated with, yeah. uh, most of the problems go away. It's only mm-hmm. when people feel like they're not being heard and they're, or they're being, uh, yeah, being treated in a disrespectful fashion that, that problems occur. Yeah. So... Uh, it's, it's uh, I, I dig being in the studio with the Stones. Never, never gets old. We we did some stuff in December, yeah, which I can tell you because they've already Ronnie Woods already <laughs> talked about. <laughs> Normally, I'm not supposed to break the news. Oh, absolutely, but, uh, it's, it's been discussed. Some word gets out too easily these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, you know, I mean now, you know, I mean, I think Ronnie tweeted. <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> it's on his Instagram. <laughs> uh, but it was it it never gets old you know yeah. I, I just sit there and, and look at who's in the room and it, it's 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 incredible and when they start playing and they get that sound there's nothing yeah. like it and the way we set them up is kind of like the stage yeah first time to the stage so it's just, they're all playing together and yeah it's pretty amazing do you find that's an important thing with a lot of a lot of musicians like maybe they've got Say a legacy act, like especially maybe by the time you're working with them, they've been forced into working in ways that weren't compatible. You well, know. well uh, yeah, I think that that, that can happen. Yeah. Uh, look, you know, I mean, uh, the, the records of guys like Max Martin and Dr. Yeah, I mean, if I knew how to do that, I, <laughs> I would do it. I, I, 
Yeah. Tremendous respect for them as, right. as record makers and as artists who know how to communicate with large numbers of people. Right. You know, that's that's a great skill and a gift, and they're really good at it. And so I, I have no attitude at all about how they want to go about making it. I got no judgment right. at all about people who sit in front of a computer and layer things up uh, by typing it in. You know, that's, yeah. that's a way to do it, you know, right. and it's a great way to do it. And people have made some incredible records yeah. uh, with that method. But personally, I, I, I get supercharged out of having a bunch of people sitting around in a circle in a room and not worrying about whether the mics are bleeding into other mics. <laughs> in fact, encouraging bleed through. And, right. and, and it's, it actually sounds better when you have it, as much drums in the vocal mic as you have vocal. There's a great <laughs> drum sound. <laughs> Something that happened. Yeah. So yeah. I prefer that. You know, I, if, if you can do it without headphones, even better. You know, yeah. It's hard to do, but... Uh, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I try to get it as as real and put as few barriers between people as possible right. whenever you can. You got to do what you got to do sometimes. Yeah. You know, if if it, it requires that you work with people who can get through a take without fucking up. <laughs> <laughs> when you work with a, a solo artist, like someone like Iggy Pop or someone like, yeah. are you looking at that, like putting a band together? Mm -hmm. To serve yeah. the means, yeah. I think you know, for the yeah, I think casting for the yeah. songs is it's just like directing a movie. You're yeah. Casting, you know, you, if you get the right musicians for the songs, and it it might be that if you're doing an Iggy album, not every song requires the same guys. Right. You know, depends on the song. But if you cast the song properly, uh, it's a lot easier to make a good record. Yeah. <laughs> and and. And casting involves not, not only people who play well, but people who listen. That's, I'm more concerned about that. Uh, I think it's really important to pay attention to the singer and, and find ways to be supportive uh, and, and allow to support, but also allow room for uh, full interpretation. Yeah. You hear some records where you know the singers weren't there when they cut the track. You just hear it, and you hear it. You hear really great singers sound like they've been stuffed into a little cage, a phrasing cage. Yeah, know? absolutely. Uh, and it's not like a nice cage. It's like what they do to veal. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. and that I, I don't understand. I always love it when you know. Let's say I, let's say I've assembled a studio band for a singer. Yeah. And, uh, pass up, you know, chord charts to everybody. But I really like the guys who, who say, let me see the lyrics. Yeah. Right. You know, if, how can you play the fucking song if you don't know what it's about? You know, if you're not paying it's not, it's not really about the chords, it's about the emotional right. uh, context. So uh, I'll, I'll watch for that. And that's, that's a sign that you're working with the right people when they, when they want to listen. Yeah, Man, to, you hold on. You hold on the chords. Let me see the lyrics. That's my favorite thing to hear. <laughs> it's true. It's it's you know. I mean, I've heard a great musician ask the writer, you know, what's what's this about? How am I supposed to feel? Yeah, exactly. it's, it's so yeah. important. Yeah, and great singers really get into it too. You know, Mick Jagger and I do that a, a lot. It's a, it's, we'll talk about the uh, what's happening in the sentence. 
is he you know, is he sad? Is he wistful or sad or is he angry here? Well, and, and you know what really one of the things Mick Jagger did that I thought was incredible. I'm trying to think of which song it was. I don't know. It was a song on Bridges to Babylon called "Anybody Seen My Baby." It's a hit single. Yeah. And uh, I we had that discussion. Is it? Is he mad or is he wistful here? And Mick said, hold on. And he had a notebook where he wrote an essay about what happened leading up to where the song begins and what happens after the song ends. Wow. Get prose written. Yeah. And so he so it had a it had a real story to it. Even if the listeners didn't know about the backstory or or what was coming right. after the Right. You know, it, it, after four and a half minutes, <laughs> what happens then? By him knowing, he was able to infuse it with more meaning. And I, I think yeah. that's why it was a single. Wow. That's pretty awesome. It was cool. I, I was, it was a very impressive thing. Perhaps one time, <laughs> Richie Sambora and I made a record. He's a right. buddy of mine. We made a, a record together in the, in the 90s. And it was in the Bon Jovi vein. It was guitar-driven. And we heard it about a movie that Jerry Bruckheimer was making that was looking for a ballad. Mm-hmm. So we drove over to see him. Was, the movie was Con Air. <laughs> so we played him the song, and he said, look, it's a really good song. I understand why you think it's great. I'm sure it's great for some movie. It's not for my movie. I've, I've got this Celine Dion song tempt in here, and they won't let me use it. But I, I don't know who refused, but he couldn't yeah. use the song. And it's all synthesizers. And it, was, it was a ballad, but right. it was, it was the musically, texturally, it was the, the oh 180 degrees yeah. from where Richie was. <laughs> so we said, we want this song to be in this movie so badly, we're going to go back and rework the record to match this. <laughs> and Richie and I stayed up for three days. And and we when we did it, we replaced everything with, keyboards and and we tried to get the sounds that jerry bruckheimer liked yeah. and then it came time for richie to do his vocal and uh i said all right we're going to try something here just so this is so in sync when you put it into the movie is is a thing i saw francis copeland do i worked on a movie with francis copeland and i had the privilege of being able to sit on the set with him and wow. sit right next to him for like a week it was a, sure. the rainmaker is a right. movie and uh, and then ask him questions. He was just so, it was, it was like a dream. Man. Yeah. So one of the techniques I saw him do was have the actors act out the five minutes leading up to where the scene improvises the thing. Yeah. You get into the character and then start the dialogue when you're wow. complete. So you're not starting from, you're not going from zero to 60. Yeah. So I said, we're going to do the same thing. I'm going to, you're going to be Nicolas Cage and I'll be uh, John Cusack and we're going to, Improvise the 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 whatever it whatever time it takes leading up right. to the scene, right? And then when when you're in character, we're going to do the vocal. And when you do the vocal, look at the screen and be Nicolas Cage. And it was fucking great. It was the best. It was the best vocal on the record, yeah. and it was it was amazing, and it matched so well. So, like I said, we'd been up for three days, and, and then the, we stayed up. It was 9 o'clock in the morning, and we drove over to meet Cherry Brook. <laughs> like, ambush him as he was coming into work. And, and he, he was cool. He saw us. He, he, he was amused by our condition. And, and, he, and he played it, and he said, all right. He said, I got to hand it to you. You've done a really good job. 
and you really did cop the the feeling right. of the Celine Dion, and it really does match the thing. I said it's just not right for my movie, and 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 we sat there. We, we're pretty out of our skulls, right? We said, "All right, man, you got three weeks to wrap the movie." There's no way you're going to find a song that we're going to wait you out. <laughs> and of course, the song he got was uh, <laughs> what's it called? <laughs> uh, I think it's it was it won the Oscar anyway. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, it was a man. Diane Warren song. Oh that, that yeah, Trisha Yearwood. How can I live without you? Yeah, yeah. Oh my it, God. Trisha Yearwood had a hit with it, and Leanne Rhymes had a hit with it. Jeez. And it was and uh, so. Waiting them out wasn't necessarily the best strategy. However, <laughs> I, I stand by the technique of right, uh, right. Act, improvising the five minutes before the song starts. Right. Were you like acting out, or you? Doing we were dialogue? acting out. Yeah, it's yeah. it just me and Richie in the house. Yeah. We were up at my house up in Mulholland. I had a studio there. Yeah. And uh, it's three o'clock in the morning. Once I said it, I really regretted it because I thought, "Oh fuck, this is hot. now I gotta like just." abandon all self-consciousness and, and yeah. risk being a shitty actor but we <laughs> we did it you know and and, uh, and he sang the fuck out of it too <laughs> yeah that's, I love that yeah. well you know I mean there's a singing is emotional but it's also a bit of acting you know yeah, yeah. you know it's, so it's yeah. like it's storytelling hand in hand you're 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 running that acting into singing it makes a lot of sense absolutely you know you don't have to be lying you know, I think some like Bonnie Raitt, where half the songs we recorded she didn't write, right. but she only recorded songs that pertained to her life at that moment. Yeah, and she, that she could have written, right. and 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 in doing so, it was very easy to infuse it with the truth. You wouldn't listen to those records and think they were disingenuous or something. No, you would not, <laughs> and they weren't. There's the, there's yeah. I saw her turn down songs that were hit records. She said, I can't sing that now. I'm not going to. It's my life that's not like reality. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, that's it. It's a hit. I don't care. With her stuff, with Nick of Time, how did that job come to you? That was kind of one of your earlier bigger successes. Yeah, that's really my fir first real one. You know, yeah. that, that uh, Nick of Time and Love Shack with the B 52s. Right. They were done on like a month apart. Wow. Back to back. And I went from being a pariah to uh, to having gigs. <laughs> right. It like, was not was it had a bit Yeah, we had some success. Bit of a claim, but you'd also yeah. run into obstacles with Geffen and, yeah. and such too. Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff. And, you know, I was always a huge Bonnie Ray fan. She's, yeah. there are other good singers around, but I don't know anyone who's better than Bonnie Ray, man. To, the, yeah. to this day, I, I get choked up listening to her sing. She just, she just really as a way of cutting through your both your physical skin and yeah. your emotional skin and, and getting deep inside it. And not just to me, but clearly for millions of people. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. She's just a she's a, an amazing artist, always was. Yeah. And I was I was just really excited to meet her. And uh, we hit it off and we did a song for a guy named Hal Wilner, who Kind of right. invented the tribute album, right, right. And, and but used to do these really eclectic ones. Exactly. So he was doing a Disney one. Oh yeah. And we did a version of Baby Mind from Dumbo, mm -hmm. and we, we just got on well, you know. We, uh, I just feel really close to yeah. her, you know. I think we, we come out of the same period, the same right. milieu, and 
so we just thought, well, let's, let's do more stuff. She, she didn't have a record deal at the time, and we started All doing right. the demos uh, for like a time in the basement of my, my house. <laughs> and uh, Were you working with the Ed Cherney from the beginning or not on some of that stuff? Yeah, or? I didn't know him before then. Yeah. Ry Cooter had recommended it to Bob. Ah, nice. Uh, and uh, and the three of us just clicked. And, yeah. You know, and um, it was a real triumvirate. The, the sound of that record, which was, at the time, was quite different than everything else that was going right. on. Right. It was a, a weird combination. We, we had three really different things in mind. <laughs> and uh, I was hearing something dark, like Joshua Tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Bonnie was hearing something uh, unaffected and pretty clean, like right. the record she had made. And Ed right. was her, was hearing something that had a little more polish. He had, right. was just coming off a, a stint of doing records with Quincy Jones. Right, which gives you a whole, informs yeah. you in a whole different way. A whole different way. So, yeah. so we would disagree about how the mixes should sound yeah. and uh, and Ed landed on a way of pleasing both of us of keeping it sounding it sounds real and unaffected but there's actually quite a bit of engineering going on yeah. and, and he did some brilliant mix things but he didn't make it huge right. it's, just, it's just tighter delays and it's just a more subtle use of the outboard gear yeah, that creates the feeling of intimacy, but still has uh, some polish. Right. So it, it enabled, it made it a very accessible sound record for people. Right. And you compare it to our earlier work, it's a different. It is a different tone. It's a different tone. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but none of that would have mattered were it not for you know how great Bonnie is. You know, and she yeah. was at a moment in time where she was. She'd gone through this transformation of getting sober, you know, and, yeah. and having to confront feelings as opposed to drown them. Right. And this is the, the first record she, she made right. like that. And uh, there's a whole lot of, of real deep stuff that came out. And you just, that that's really what characterized it. Yeah. Anything, I think. And connected with so many people, yeah. obviously. Yeah. And you were, so the, some of the Cosmic Thing album, you were, Producing those tracks at the same time or around then? Yeah, I, we, yeah. I did them back to back. One was yeah. like in August, one was in <laughs> September. That was just fun. I loved B52. Yeah. So, and, uh, well, yeah, I always think that's a Nile Rogers record. He did. But he did half. You got it about half each, right? Yeah. But you did Love Shack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a huge hit for them. That was, like, that's a, that's, I, it's probably the biggest single I, I ever had. You know, I, I think. I've been accounted to on like six or seven million singles on that one. So, yeah, so <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they're they're great. They're a great band, and, and uh, they would write in a very unique way. They, they, yeah, they play a groove, and that's it. Always reminded me the groove, basic groove of Love Shack is kind of like Cool Jerk mm-hmm. by the Capitals, <laughs> a little bit. You know? And so it had that that kind of thing to. And then they would just yeah. play this groove. And the three singers would improvise. Right. And they just jam on it for 45 minutes and they'd tape it. And then they'd write down all the cool lines. And then they'd have these lists. <laughs> Everyone kept a list of the cool lines that they sang. Right. So three lists and go like ceiling to floor and just be <laughs> uh, hopping my Chrysler. It's about to set sail. Yeah. And then, then there was no context to it. And we, that wasn't really a song that we intended to record, but we right. finished early. 
right. the ones that we intended to record. And they said, well, we got this one other thing, but it's like 15 minutes long. We don't know what to do with it. And nothing ever repeated. So uh, they asked me to edit it. And it just seemed like, all right, well, this thing about the Love Shack, this is like, yeah. hey, maybe this is the thing that holds together. It's a tenuous glue. Uh, glue. Yeah. yeah. No, no. Um, and, uh, um, and so we, ju we just sat there and we cut it down to three and a half minutes from 15 and, and made this the chorus. Right. And we went out to cut it, and it was uh, it was the first take. First take was great, except when we got to the your tin roof rusted <laughs> part, which you know God knows what it means. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. she, Cindy, infused it with so much meaning and emotion yeah. that everyone was kind of startled. And we came in, we, we didn't come back in right. Okay, so it right, fell apart right. there because it was like, whoa, what was that? <laughs> it just, so we, we, tried, we tried it another 30 times. We tried, we tried it all day long. We just kept cutting it and we get worse and we lose the groove of the thing. Oh, and man. it wasn't, this was before Pro Tools. Yeah. And we went out to dinner and we were kind of depressed. And we went back to, someone said, wait, let's listen to the first take again. So we put that on. And then we heard it fall apart, but it, it's it, we had all stopped. Your tin roof rusted, so we just we just punched in after we went back to the first take. Punched in after your tin no. roof rusted and love shack, baby. That, and we just did the map out. It, it, it's an easy, easy solution, fish. yeah. But uh, I, I hadn't had the depth of experience to think of it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it was a, a very it was an almost improvised wow. moment, but. They bring so much energy to it. The I mean, it just makes it fun. Yeah. But again, a great chemistry between the, yeah. you know, those four principles. Charlie yeah. Drayton was playing drums. He was great. Oh, yeah. That made a big difference. Yeah. Great. Were you able to pick the players, the backing players for that record? Yeah. 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 I, I, well, Sarah Lee, I think, had been playing. Oh, right. We lived in Woodstock. Yeah. She'd been playing with Gang of Four. She went to yeah. high school with my wife. No so way. Was a, had some history there. But, you, you produced like a... A wide variety of styles, yeah. and I think one of the things that people don't know you for is is country and, and you know countryish songwriter like Christopherson oh, yeah, type production yeah. as well. It, it I, I like all kinds of music. Yeah. Uh, so, truthfully, you know, I'm, I don't know any musicians who sit there and, <laughs> and think, hmm, I think I'll play an R and B line. Oh, now I'll play a country lick. You know, right, you, you don't right. think, musicians don't think of categories; they just play. No. And uh, and so, I mean, categories are good for organizing the iTunes store, and yeah. you know that that kind of thing. Or you want to keep track of your records at home. If Record stores, yeah, if they still exist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's like a Dewey Decimal System, but the author's not thinking. Hmm, should I write a nine hundred book or a six hundred? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, so the the style doesn't matter much. The, what matters is that it's infused with some real feeling, and, yeah. and that that and that it's communicative. Yeah. So that, uh, you know, I, I personally find Willie Nelson to be as expressive as John Coltrane. Sure. I you know, especially in the case of Willie, I mean, the way he his phrasing is so uh, inventive. Yeah. And, uh, Always changing the soul. I've, I've got to see him over and over. And I'm like, 
different solo every night. All the time. <laughs> I just played with him two weeks ago. He was on nice. fire, man. He was he was great. He's stre- He's the only guitar player in his band now. Really? So he's stretching wow. out more, and he's really playing well. Wow. Like he he was like Hendrix the other night. Man. We played a gig in Nashville a couple of weeks ago. It was a, a tribute for uh, for Christopherson. Chris oh, was right. there. Yeah. yeah. And we're doing uh, Sunday morning coming down. And he mm. took a, an extended solo on it. Whoa, man! Yeah, deep, you know, <laughs> and he has the, that same. The, he, he, there's a conversation going on. He'll he'll play off of you do something. He'll react to it. Yeah, he is like a jazz musician. He's just right. using different different modes. I've, I've seen him baffle his backing bands a couple oh, yeah. of times. Yeah, he'll, he'll fuck with you too. You know, he'll he'll pull a phrase back so far that it's into the next line. You know, uh-huh. and, and if you don't know where one is, <laughs> you're fucked. He, he, he challenges your uh, your knowledge of the uh, location of one yeah. on a regular basis. And producing someone like, like Willie, it's got to be real interesting to like, he looks great, man. You what, know. He, what he wants to do on this album and where he wants to go with it. Yeah, I, I've made a number of records with him. Yeah. And uh, he's always himself. The most interesting thing that I found was I only saw him get upset once. And that was when he came into the room to hear a playback and his guitar was down in, in volume and his vocal was up. And he couldn't understand why the engineer didn't, under, didn't get that they were the same thing. Mm-hmm. There's guitar playing and his vocal. It's yeah. all part of one performance. Right. And, it, and why would it it'd be like having a fader that turns down all the consonants? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just killed half of everything. <laughs> but he, he's a, he's a, a great artist. Christopherson's a great yeah. artist, man. You know, uh, a, a couple of Merle Haggard, a couple of George right. Jones. Right. Uh, Conway Twitty. I, wow. I, I produced Conway Twitty's last session. Everybody's got a very distinctive style, yeah. way of phrasing, yeah. singing, and everything. Yeah, I had a band once. Started a band with Ringo. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it, and we got Ben Montench right. playing organ. Uh, a guy named Mark Goldenberg, who, uh, guitar player who played with Jackson Brown for years, was playing right. guitar, and a singer out of Nashville named Janelle Mosser. And we wanted to get a guy singer too, but we were having trouble. We were really got. We wanted to go out and make a record and tour, right? Yeah. And uh, and so I'm trying to think. First, we called Delbert McClinton, and mm-hmm. he, he was like really. Oh, we called Levon Helm first. Wow. Yeah. And uh, he he just didn't show up. <laughs> <laughs> so so we called Delbert, and Del- Delbert was like in Japan, and Lyle Lovett came in and played. Wow. And then. We, then but Lyle couldn't, it was busy, you know, doing his own shows. Sure. So we were trying to think of who the guy was. And and, uh, and I had a dream about Merle Haggard singing in the band. Right? So through uh, Willie's manager, Mark Rothbaum, he connected me with Merle. Yeah. And we went up to his place and we cut some stuff. Uh, ben Mott and I still can't believe we're present for this, you know, to be in a room playing live with Merle Haggard and Ringo Starr. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's it's fucking amazing. It never came out, but man, it was oh. great. It, it, uh, um, yeah. We got a version of Born to Lose that's, that's floating around. I don't even think I have it here with me. But, yeah. Uh, uh, man. <laughs> it's, it, was, it, was, it was mesmerizing to like record with those guys. Is, Just to visually yeah. to see it happen. Oh, sure. Yeah. It is crazy the number of things that never do 
get released for various reasons, you know, sessions that don't. Well, sometimes getting released isn't uh, your primary intention. It's just getting it out of your system, man. Yeah. You know, like you got all the stuff pent up. Uh, yeah. Commerce is uh, doesn't always walk hand in hand with right. music. <laughs> Here we are in the tower saying yeah, this yeah. too. I mean, yeah. Well, that was a yeah. that was a big deal in taking this gig here, man. Yeah. You know, it was the idea of of working at Blue Note Records was absolutely irresistible. Yeah. Uh, but the idea of working at a record company, to be honest with you, was anathema. You know, it was to me the record company was they were the guys who came in and fucked up your records, told you <laughs> the wrong things to do, and then if it worked, they stole your money. That's yeah. all I So I, I never wanted to, you know, I wanted to minimize my exposure to record companies, to be honest with you. Yeah. But <laughs> the chance to be part of Blue Note, which has meant so much to me since I was a teenager, I couldn't pass by, and I'm really glad I didn't. And they were thinking of maybe even kind of... Ceasing the label that what Here's what happened. I was in New York. I was working with John Mayer, recording mm-hmm. uh, Born and Raised. At Electric Lady? Or? At Electric Lady, yeah, yeah. yeah. And we had a night off. We took a Tuesday night off because he had a private gig that basically paid for the whole album. <laughs> <laughs> Good deal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, and so with my night off, I went up to a, a club that's almost all the way up in Harlem on the west side. And I saw this guy, Gregory Porter, right. amazing singer. And yeah. he'd made two... Just one at that point, one independent record that I just loved, and I couldn't mm-hmm. believe it. So I went to the gig and I sat there for three sets and just ate ribs and drank coffee <laughs> and had the best time. Man. And, there was, and the next morning, I was having breakfast with an old buddy of mine, a guy named Dan McCarroll, who I knew was a drummer. He was playing with Cheryl Crow and Lloyd oh. Cole and the Commotions. Oh, but, yeah. uh, at that point, he was the president of Capitol Records. He's now president of Warner Brothers Records. Right. <laughs> and and. We were, we were just buddies, so we were talking about other stuff. And at the end of the breakfast, I said, uh, is Blue Note Records still part of uh, Capital? Because if it is, you should sign this guy. I saw that. I yeah. Greg Reporter. Well, totally unbeknownst to me, man. They, that was the week they were trying to decide what to do with Blue Note Records. <laughs> and with Bruce Lungball retiring, right. they didn't seem to be a vision for how you move the company forward. And they were thinking, well, maybe we just close it down, turn it into a website that sells catalog and you know T-shirts, and yeah. call it a day. Yeah. And but Dan wasn't comfortable with that. Uh, Roger Faxon, who was the CEO of uh, EMI at the time, he 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 wasn't comfortable with it. So I showed up with an idea, and they offered me the job, oh just gosh. like that. Man. <laughs> so it, it was irresistible. And I what I what I did learn was that uh, for the most part. The people who work at record companies uh, actually love music and love the musicians. Would yeah. lay down their lives for the musicians. Yeah. Will st- are willing to stay here till 10, 11 o'clock at night for people they maybe artists they maybe haven't even met, don't even know personally, but they're so devoted to it right. that they're willing to stay here to make sure that people get to hear it. Now I was very moved to see that the dedication of the people who work here and. Uh, I'm not saying that it's not a constant battle to reconcile artistry and commerce. Right. But a weird thing happened to me as a producer. Overall, the sum total of my experience was that 
the more I didn't pay attention to commerce and just made records from the heart or helped artists make records from the heart, the more successful they were. And every time I tried, I entered into a somewhat cynical attempt to do something commercial. It right. flopped. Right. And all the records that were hits were records that were kind of, they kind of defied the trend of the moment, but, uh, but they got through to people because they had, because there was something real going on with the artists. Right. So the business plan was just try to make really great records and hope that a good percentage <laughs> of them <laughs> connect with people. And I think you can carry yeah. that over into the record company. Yeah. When it becomes your responsibility to connect with people, I'm, you know, the conventional wisdom used to be that nine out of ten records stiffed. Right. And I'm not, I'm not too confident when it's my responsibility. <laughs> I mean, I really know how hard it is. I'm, yeah. Like, if you start, if you start counting from the moment that an artist starts writing songs. Yeah. And you think of how hard it is to write a, a song. How you got to bleed to write something that rings true. Yeah. And it's, it might take you a year just to right. write the songs. And that's before you start thinking about how to record them and then going through all the recording and then all the mastering and the A-being. Well, I don't know. I think if we need another three, uh, 0.3 dB at 10K. Um, uh, just, just on track too, you know? Yeah. And that, you know, so you go through all that and the cover art and, and all the interviews and the, right. and then to have your record company drop the ball, that's just not acceptable. And to be honest with you, it, it's happened to me a whole you know, way too often as a record producer. Right. And sometimes it happens, you know, sometimes things just don't come together. And, and uh, I, t I take that real hard as the president of a record company. Sure. I, I don't like doing that. And so we, we try really hard not to drop the ball on anybody. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't mean every record is going to connect with people, but every record should have the opportunity for people to decide if the music mean right. something to them or not. Right. I was concerned about right brain versus left brain. I do have to actually yeah. think about the budgets and the right. profit and loss on everything. And I do have to think, I don't have to sit there, be a lawyer and negotiate the contracts, <laughs> but I got to know what's in the contracts. And, right. and I was afraid that uh, I was going to deactivate the creative parts of my brain you know, you got to you can yeah. open up previously dormant synopses, uh, but you're going to only have so many synopses <laughs> firing at once, right? right? So you shut down things that you're not using. Yeah. yeah. So I had, uh, I had no need to ever look at a spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> ever, you know. And Before. I was, I, I was kind of <laughs> looking forward to like closing out the rest of my life without ever like going near a spreadsheet. Yeah. But, but I, I've got to do it now, and I got to know what these things mean. And uh, and so something had to close down. I, I was afraid I, I wouldn't be able to uh, ever. I thought, all right, I'll take this gig. It'd be cool. It'd be a fun adventure. But I have the feeling I'm never going to write a song again. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, so, but what I try to do is play as often as I can. Yeah. I got a couple of great gigs coming up this month. Like right, that's not gigs. Fun. Uh, We're playing in uh, the New Orleans during the New Orleans Jazz Festival. Nice. Uh, we're doing this thing. 
uh, we're recreating the last waltz at the Sanger Theater. And oh, we right. We put a band together. It's Warren Haynes, Michael McDonald's going to play piano, uh-huh. John Medeski, Jamie Johnson, wow. Terrence Higgins in a horn section. Uh, mm-hmm. I play bass. I'm, yeah, that's, bass. A, that's a great gig and a wonderful theater. I think so bass lines are oh, a treat, right? Incredible. Well, some <laughs> of them, George, uh, George Porter Jr. is going to play some of the funkier ones. Oh, yeah. Like, right? down, you know, but he, uh, we're, we're going to trade off. Oh, that'll be fun. Yeah, so try to, try to do that as often as you can. You're making time for producing other things that are outside of Blue Note? Yeah, not as many, you know, yeah. but uh, Greg Allman. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. producing. Uh, we started a Stones record. Maybe we'll finish it. Maybe we won't. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and I, I do, you know, I just produced this Dr. Lonnie Smith record that wow. uh, came out. Yeah. I produced Robert Glasper and I produced like kind of an all-star band of Blue Note artists. It's uh, Robert and uh, Marcus Strickland on sax, Ambrose Akimusiri on trumpet, uh, Derek Hodge on bass, Kendrick yeah. Scott on drums, Lionel Luecki on guitar. Wow, that sounds It's just really a great record, man. We cut it down on capital A. Right. And it's really good. It's, oh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great band. You know, so that, that'll come out later this year. Yeah. Is it pretty crazy working on a label that's got studio facilities it's a, at its disposal? I, first time I, I did a record here with an office in the building. Yeah. I thought, of course, that's why they do it. It's so great, man. You have your office, you get in the elevator, and you're at the studio, man. You know, no yeah. traffic, no nothing. You go back up if you take a break and take yeah. care of business. I, I, and the people from the company can come down and hear it, and you get yeah. everyone out. You play it for the radio guys. Yeah, come right. Check. So it's great to have a studio in the building. And especially that studio, right? Um, <laughs> that's a that's another one that you never take for granted. The experience never gets old. Right. It's, it's, uh, the ghosts living in the walls are are, are vivid, <laughs> right? You know, and, and present, and you can feel it. And and they're they're good. Yeah. I was really curious about the Stones reissues. The first two were yeah, where you were revisiting tracks that weren't yeah. finished and stuff. I, yeah. I was really fascinated by how to get in the mindset of X amount of decades ago and and, and how, how the process worked for you guys doing that. Yeah, I mean, obviously I wasn't there the yeah. first time. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know how to get back in that mindset. Yeah. Get them, uh, well, I mean to get the, the yeah. band kind of thinking about it fresh again. But. There were times that they were able to. For the most part, there were things that were finished. Right. Except maybe they didn't have final vocals or the, he never finished writing the songs. So there was... Keith did some things where it just needed something to right. sound like a record, but it wasn't too hard for him to lock into uh, what he yeah. was doing. And you could certainly lock into the sound of it. Mick can lock into the sound of it, but doesn't always want to. I, yeah. I think he liked the idea of being who he is today, revisiting <laughs> the songs rather than trying to fool people. Right. I think he, he saw it as a more sincere way of approaching it. So the first one was Exile, right? Yeah. 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 Particularly on that one. I tried, you know, because I know he can do it. Or he can sound just like the guy who's singing <laughs> Tumbling Dice if he wants to. Right. And we got the same mics. And we did the whole thing and the same everything. But it, it was, I think he felt it was disingenuous to pretend to be the guy. Right. And that's what, that's what he didn't want to do, was try to trick people into thinking that these were, oh, look, we found some finished records. Right, he wanted to right. be very straightforward about the fact that they were tracks that were left over and that he was going to finish them, but let's yeah. not yeah. fool people by 
which I, I commend him for. So it's this weird mixture. I, I quite like it. Stuff, yeah. You know? yeah. And the, uh, the, the some girls' tracks, I think those were a little further along. That, that yeah. required less things. And the sticky fingers, there's just nothing left. The sticky fingers, basically, anything that was left over from, uh, if there's stuff left over from Let It Bleed, yeah, it ended up on <laughs> it ended up on sticky fingers. If there was stuff right. left over from sticky fingers, it ended up on exile. If there was right. stuff left over right. from exile, and it didn't get uh, absorbed into tattoo you, right. we used it on the exile reissues. <laughs> so the periods sort of overlap. Oh yeah, and. We had really depleted. There, there's stuff, yeah. but it's yeah. just blues jamming, and there, there was there just yeah. wasn't anything that that was worth building on top of. Right. But there are periods where there are two whole albums. Of, you know. Oh, um, oh man. Uh, what's the one? Uh, Emotional rescue. Oh there's, wow. There's there's all kinds of stuff in there. The stuff I did on, on Virgin, man. There's at least one album of, of all of those right. three Virgin studio albums. Unfinished, unreleased. Yeah. That yeah. are good, man. That are yeah. really good. That we yeah. had to make hard choices to leave them off. Yeah. And we said, ah, we'll use them on the next one. And you never use them on the next right, one. Right, right. So they're sitting there. That, 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 so there are more fertile periods, but uh, yeah. I, but I think that's it. I, th I think what they did with Sticky Fingers was really cool. Yeah. The live stuff, you know. Oh, that's fun. But it was fun yeah. going back. It was really fun going through, listening to oh, yeah. know, hundreds of hours of outtakes <laughs> from Exile. Wow. <laughs> you, you really get a, a feel for what went on. Uh, that, oh, yeah. that was a real, I was, you know, like, uh, being a theologian and uh, listening to, uh, or, and being, getting the Dead Sea Scrolls <laughs> at your house for a couple of years to mess around with. With, with that, with, with such a loose recording scenario and, and the, the amount of stuff that was obviously rolled, you know, to get to where they went and then headed it down to be the album. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the most fascinating little yeah. snapshot there. It's interesting to see. I, one of the things I found, it's not of the period, but it was yeah. lumped in with the tapes, was the evolution of honky tonk women. So oh, all wow. takes it starts, <laughs> but it's starting at country honk, right? And then it not making it really for them, I guess. And they came in the next day, and Ian Stewart started doing this honky tonk piano, right? And then they filled in around what he was playing on the piano <laughs> and on the last couple of takes they took the piano and, and that's and that's where all the, right. the angular guitar rhythms that that comes in because they're playing around sure. this other thing that was filling up all the space <laughs> so it was, it, it, i i always wish they would put that out as a cd man so just the, the evolution how did they get there? it's it's just a fascinating documentary you see that in that uh, Godard movie yeah you know, whether exactly. we're going to with the devil. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. fascinating. Yeah. It's like, yeah. well, go in there and play Shakers, Brian, and then Keith's going to play bass, and yeah. you know, you're like, what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> and it turns into the thing. Yeah, it's beautiful. Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapeop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time.